Hello and welcome to the Catherine Plano podcast. Yes, we have a new show with new episodes. The format of the show is a little bit different. It is broken up into three parts. The first part, Moments of Awe, where I share actionable tips, strategies and coaching models that you can implement in your daily life for massive improvements. And a new part of the show, Tips from My Pen, where I share my insights from my morning pages. And last but not least, Purposeful Conversations with our Radical Shifts series, where we have honest chats with change instigators, compelling creators, and interesting humans who are breaking the cycle of convention and redefining success one mission at a time. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning, connection, and resilience into your life. Now let's jump into your weekly dose of practical goodness. we have another super amazing guest for you, Terry Cole, who is a New York-based licensed psychotherapist, relationship expert, and founder of Real Love Revolution and Boundary Bootcamp, her two female empowerment courses reaching women in over 25 countries. For two decades, Terry has worked with some of the world's most well-known personalities from international pop stars, athletes, Broadway performers, and TV personalities to thought leaders and Fortune 500 CEOs. She empowers over 100,000 women weekly through her published articles, blogs, meditations, online courses, and her popular Hello Freedom podcast. She has featured as an expert therapist and master life coach on TEDx, Real Housewives, Hey House Radio, and lots more. It's now time to tune into Terry. Enjoy. Well, I'm super excited with uh, this guest today because I've actually had the pleasure of uh, spending and investing some time with Terry. We've got Terry Cole. Welcome to the Radical Shift Summit. Well, thanks, Kath. So we always love to start with the juicy story. So Terry, what is your unique story and how did you get to where you are today? <laughs> how much time do we have? As much um, as you like. Well, I think that the story that is sort of unique is that I had a whole other career before I became a psychotherapist and before I became obsessed with healthy love and healthy boundaries and female empowerment stuff. I actually was a talent agent um, negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities in New York City and LA and everywhere. And my epiphany um, about changing something, there was so many things that that sort of came together, like coalesced for me to be like, wow, I need to get out of here. But I needed to understand that what I was seeking, and um, which was a feeling, 
I thought it was going to be at the top of this heap, right? So I was very ambitious by my early 30s. I was basically running the New York office of this talent agency, like all sexy and exciting and Naomi Campbell and all these people. And every next place I kept thinking, well, when I get to this point and I'm totally going to feel the way I want to feel, definitely. I would get to that point and be like, uh, nope. Okay. So maybe if I have these clients, maybe if I make this money, maybe if I'm the boss, right? If, if I'm the boss of the bosses, will that do it? That I got to that place and the feeling wasn't there. And so I really had to go up against sort of the tide because, you know, imagine that lots of people in my life were like, you have this amazing, sexy, shiny, sparkly career making all this dough. What could possibly be wrong enough that would make you, you want to start over? You're in your early thirties. And I, and I remember distinctly talking to my dad. Um, he is now deceased, but at the time he was alive, obviously. And he was saying, I don't get it. You know, I, I don't understand. You know, it sounds weird, literally. <laughs> Those were his words. And I said, you know, dad, what's kind of amazing about me being grown up is that you don't have to get it. I'll make a simple request that you respect and, um, you know, honor what I'm choosing for myself, but I don't need anything from you. I don't need money. I don't need anything, but I would love for you to support me because here's the thing. It may sound weird to you, but I'm not happy. Like I'm not fulfilled doing this regardless of what other people think, even you dad, right? Like it's my life and I need to feel like I'm adding value or whatever it was. And so much of it was that I, I had been on my own, um, psychological journey Throughout that time, many years of therapy, I stopped drinking. Like there were all of these things. And so I got to a point and I was like, oh, this is not what it's about. Like what it's about is I want to add value. I want other women who are in the pain that I was in to learn that, that there's a different way of doing it and that we can learn new skills and we can learn language and it doesn't matter what like cards you were dealt, so to speak. I had this whole personal epiphany that like, not only do I not need those cards, I could be like, hey, I don't even like this friggin' game. Like I'm, I'm changing the whole thing. It's gonna be. And that I was so um, lit up by the possibilities that opened up for me when I realized it didn't matter what happened in my family before, or how many alcoholics there were or or that I had gone down this, this road of this career for almost a decade, that, that I wouldn't be admitting I was failing. This would be me having the next adventure, the next right action in my life was changing and doing something. So I went back to school and I, I really went to like a crappy undergraduate school. So like I had some nerve, I applied to one grad school, NYU. I was like, I gotta, if I don't get in, I guess I'll do something else. But you know, and, and listen, I, I applied before I quit my job, obviously. And I actually stayed on with that job, working remotely for the entire time that I was in grad school, which is insane, but I did. Um, because everything is possible if you think that it is. So I don't know, I feel like that that's kind of my unique story to get to how I ended up here. And it was really through, I mean, I probably knew that I should leave entertainment or knew that I wanted to for about three years before I actually had the, the um, you know, big enough ovaries to actually do it. Because there is a part of you that goes, like, now, am I going to be poor? Like, you know, my father's like, Tara, so you're going to pay 
NYU, 75 grand to become a, like a, literally you're going to become a social worker. Like, I don't get it. And I was like, well, not exactly. I'm going to become a psychotherapist. I'm going to open a private practice. And from that point, so I spent 20 years in the trenches with clients. Um, and from that is how my brand, my public brand was born because I was so lit up about what I was doing and seeing women transform their lives. And when I say transform, what I mean is go from feeling unsatisfied, frustrated, in pain, to feeling satisfied, self-determined, right? We're self-contained. Like I, I can change my life, but it's my choice to do so. You know, as my mother would say, she has this on her refrigerator, uh, please don't blame me for your failures and I won't take credit for your accomplishments. And this is just what we want in life is to be self-determined. And I find that women are, we're very self-pleasers, right? We have the, have the disease to please. As Harriet Breaker uh, coined, she wrote a book called um, Curing the People-Pleasing Syndrome. And she called it having the disease to please. And I'm like, oh my God, it's still so relevant today. Anyway, long way around the barn. That's my story. So how does one, I'm, I'm relating to what you're saying. I, I love the story, but how does one uh, create strong boundaries? And because and, I'm a people pleaser, I'm a recovering people pleaser. And I find my default position is to say yes to others and uh, not even consider me in the equation. So how do we women, and I see that more, more so in women, not saying that men don't, of course, but how do we build strong boundaries? Well, the first we have to, we have to sort of back into why does no one even teach us what boundaries are? Why, why do we not even know what they are? Because if you asked anyone and any of the, the people who are listening right now, like, what are boundaries? There are so many myths out there about what it is. So I like Brene Brown's, um, she's got a super simple version, right? Her explanation of boundaries is letting people know what is okay with you and what is not okay with you. So we'll go on that simple definition because that's pretty much what it is. Why is it so hard? Why do we not know it? Well, we have other training that is in play. We have other things that have happened in our lives. We're socialized a particular way, right? We are women, traditionally, if we're talking about heteronormative gender stuff, you know, we are the bridgers, the assuagers, the soothers of like everyone and everything. So you can go into a room and you can just scan. Like we know, I want to make sure that you have what you need and that you have what you need and that everyone has what they need. And then in the end, you're like, wow, guess what? Nothing left in the bucket for me. I'm exhausted. And then if we go down that road, what happens? We're pissed. The martyr syndrome, the victor, the victim syndrome, there are all these things that happen because there are so many myths around boundaries. So let's move into what they are. So obviously the simple version from Brene, what's okay, what's not okay. That's one. There's so much more than that. Obviously, I teach an entire course on boundaries, right? There's, there's so much more. But I think before we can get to how do you do it, we really have to look at why we relate to people when it comes to boundaries the way that we do. So I always teach, and in the course we teach about your downloaded boundary blueprint, basically. So perhaps you had a mom who was a real people pleaser or a dad, somebody 
who taught you about the auto yes that you were just describing before, where when someone wants something or if you can help someone, you should say yes. This is what we consider um, societally, what has been known to be feminine, what is known to be, this is female, this is like we're mama earth, we're all these things. Now, a lot of that is changing, thank God, because of what's going on in the world and me too and politics and okay, good. But that doesn't help those of us who've already been trained with this misinformation around our rights and obligations in our relationships. So for me, what, what shifted in my personal growth was when I understood from a brilliant psychotherapist who I've been seeing for many years, that saying yes, when I really felt no, or wanted to say no, was not only not nice, it was really simply being dishonest. And so that was a real wake up call for me because I didn't want to see myself as being dis. I was like, ew, that, that's, that sounds so much worse than me thinking, I'm just nice like that. You know, we just like to think we're, we're like, you know, Mother Teresa. But the reality, when I got what was really going on, and then through the therapeutic process, and then through hundreds of my own clients, thousands probably at this point, we saw that the way that it plays out when you um, say yes, when you want to say no, when you overcommit, when you overfunction, when you overgive, which is what so many of the women in my tribe, right, they identify with my work because this is what they're doing in their life. What we're really doing is we're setting up the people in our lives and our relationships to fail because we're giving them misinformation, right? They don't know what's true because we're trying to be nice. So now we're continually giving them bad intel about what's true for us and what's real. And then we're like, why don't they know? Well, they don't know because you're lying. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. It's true. Um, and then we have all these lies we tell ourselves like, well, any, any decent person would know that that's just obvious that they should do this thing that I want them to do that they're not reading my mind to do. No, not really. So there has to be the willingness to take responsibility for our happiness. And it's not just getting our needs met, right? It's about letting our preferences be known. And the earlier we do that in relationships, the more authentic those relationships are. We also have to be able to accept someone else's no, someone else's boundary without being like, they're rejecting me. It's just ah, like feeling devastated because it's interesting. It's like when I teach this, this course on boundaries, there's a lot of focus on like boundary bullies and other people who are like trying to trample on your boundaries. But then what we really reveal by like, week four or five is that many of the women in the courses are like, oh, I'm kind of actually a boundary bully. So what, what is this connected to? And I don't want to get to, I want to answer the question. I think I am. I'm not sure, but am I answering? The yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Just make it sure. Just if I go too far out, just no, reel me back I'm, in. I'm really into this. This is awesome. And I'm, I'm actually, I've got some questions to the, that uh, is resonating. So keep going. Cool. What ends up happening is we end up in that state of being angry and being bitter. And the real question and the thing that shifted me personally is if we never let anyone authentically know us, how can anyone ever authentically love us? 
So it's, it's not looking at always looking out at like the people, like what are the people doing? And if my partner were just different, he or she were different, then it would all be fine. It's looking at our part of this dance, learning how to change our moves, right? What are we going to do that is different than what we're doing now? But the first and foremost is you have to understand where you are not drawing boundaries and cut yourself slack as to why, right? There's so many reasons why we don't. The myths about boundaries. If you think of someone and they have great boundaries, what do do you think of? Just those of you listening right now, watching, what, what do you think of? Oh, she's got great boundaries. So does that make you think she's a bitch? She's hard. She's demanding. She's bossy. Because there's a lot of myths around having good boundaries. And the reality is that you can draw boundaries with ease, with grace, and with love when appropriate, right? Not when not, but yeah. There's, and the more you do it, the less catastrophic or confrontational any of it needs to be. The problem is that we wait so long, we hit a tipping point, and then we're like, I will just be torching the village now because I've waited way too long to tell anyone that I'm pissed off about anything. And then finally, you're just like, everyone's going down because of this. It's so true. So there's a couple of things out of it. So as I'm listening to what you were saying, it was because uh, I'm a big people pleaser. You're depriving mm-hmm. others of learning as well, aren't you? For Because you're always doing things for them. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I'm thinking about what boundaries am I pushing because I want to please others. So when you talk about mm-hmm. boundary bully, that's what mm-hmm. made me reflect on. And the other thing was, the last thing, is mm-hmm. how does one um, not feel guilty? That's I think that's my thing. I actually am um, practicing boundaries. But I know that sometimes I struggle a little bit because there's this guilt that creeps up. So how do you stop the the guilt taking over? Well, part of it is you have to understand. Sorry, I should have unhooked that phone, but I didn't. Um, You have to understand that when we do things for other people that they haven't asked us to do, right? When we are in there like trying, actually feeling responsible for other people's feelings, for their choices and for their outcomes, that's really codependency. So we don't want to see it that way. And what I find is that so many women in my crew, because they're very high functioning, successful, um, they've learned how to negotiate a lot in the world. So they never identified with like the, the codependency label. And so I created a new label because I didn't identify with it either. It was very like Melody Beatty, 1980, where it always seemed to be had to do with addicts and it was all about enabling behavior, right? Which it may be. But what it really is, is that the women in my crew, they're so high functioning in life. They can do so much and really leaving so so little for themselves and they can still kind of get it all done. It's like, you know, Ginger Rogers, right? Like she did everything that Fred Astaire did, except she did it backwards and in heels. Yeah. So those are the people in my crew, basically. And what you don't realize is that every outcome that you want to fix, 
every bad decision that you want to buffer someone from, every feeling that you're like, well, I don't know why you feel that way. You're amazing and you shouldn't and la, la, la. Where you But you really got to think about what are you doing? You're uncomfortable. This is what codependency is about. It's all about covertly trying to control circumstances and people and outcomes. So... Wow. That impacts our boundaries, right? That mm-hmm. impacts what we see as boundaries. So one major part of what we do in, in the course and the things that I talk about is you have to understand what is your side of the street? What is someone else's side of the street? And we've got to get rid of the illusion that me overgiving, overdoing, when someone's, when I go to a potluck and they say, bring one thing and I bring seven and then they're not grateful enough. And I'm like, you know, she was kind of a bitch because she wasn't even that thankful. Hi, nobody asked you to bring seven things, but we do set ourselves up. There's a tendency to give advice. Someone's like, well, I don't know, I'm looking for a job. They're like, oh, I went on Google for you and I found this and I did this and I did that, you know? And they didn't ask you. And then if they don't take your advice, here's another, here's another sort of pitfall of the whole high function and codependency stuff is that, you know, we'll spend our time giving people our counsel, giving people our ideas and our thoughts. And then when they don't take them because they won't because it's really not your idea to you know it's their life they got to figure it out we're like well if she had just done what i said it all would have worked out great i mean i told her he was bad news from the beginning well great so you're right that doesn't actually make you a good friend (laughs) a good friend says what do you think you should do how can i best support you right now what are your thoughts hold space for the person to figure it out themselves Because when you really get it, you realize it's not for you to figure out. You don't actually have their answers. It's just an illusion. And their pain or their discomfort is making you uncomfortable. So when you, what you want to do is stop your own discomfort. And again, that was another realization that I had many years ago in therapy where I was like, ew, wait, I thought I was so nice. I thought I was so loving. You know, my therapist like, I'm not saying you're not loving. I'm just saying like what's really happening is you want this person who you think their life is a hot mess, disaster train heading for hell. You want them to just stop making bad choices. Yeah, I do, but it's not for you. So what do you do? How do you protect yourself from those things? Don't take on other people's stuff. Realize that they're on their own path and that you don't know what lessons they need to learn in this life and the format those lessons are going to come in. And really we could be like, we're blocking not just the evolution of the other person by doing this. And listen, they're colluding because they're 50% of the dance that you're doing with them. Sure. But importantly, it stunts the growth of your relationships. So if we were talking about specifically romantic relationships how do we grow? We grow through trial and error. We grow through having a hard conversation, but then feeling that, that deeper intimacy because we've told the truth, because we've been voluntarily vulnerable instead of trying to control. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You're, doing, you're completely flipping it around. So what I'm hearing, Terry, is that obviously we need to work on codependency, codependency first before we start working on our boundaries is that correct yes you you have to at least really understand 
where the codependency is showing up in your life. Because I find with most women, it just is because our roles and because we're lovers and because we're empaths and because we feel so deeply that even though we're misguided, when we're giving out all kinds of advice and doing things people haven't asked us to do, like that's a misguided um, gesture, I think. You have to understand where you're doing it. And, And that really is the beginning because most women who've been through my courses really in the beginning go, so weird. When we started this piece about codependency, I was like, totally not me. And then I started reading and I was like, oh my God, totally me. So whatever preconceived notion you may have about what it means to be codependent, just think about it this way. Wherever you take on responsibility for the feelings, the choices, the outcomes of other people, that is you being codependent if you do anything about it, right? It's like you, you, you can feel that way, get healthy enough to be like, I'm not making that suggestion they didn't ask me for right? You may still feel like, oh, I don't want them to be in pain, but I really feel like it's possible. And I know because I've helped thousands of women do it to step back from our own projection, right? Because you actually don't even know how they're feeling unless they're telling you, but you're like, oh, they're uncomfortable or they're unhappy and I need to do something. All of this has to do with our downloaded love blue. I mean, our downloaded boundary blueprint because we were taught this, If you grew up in a home, every family system, just like every culture, has their norms, has the way it is. So if you grew up in a family that had rock-solid boundaries, it's probably rare, but let's just say you did, that then it would be easier for you to understand, this is my side of the street, that is someone else's side of the street, and it it is not unloving for me not to try to take responsibility for what is theirs, and in fact... It is loving for me to hold space for them to figure it out themselves. But this requires understanding what is in the basement or the unconscious part of your mind. So how we bring up that sort of that blueprint is to just go back in time and look at the family that you grew up in. Did everyone know everything about everybody? Was there a lot of like gossiping sort of like intra-family gossiping sort of? would talk about each other or say this happened or this is, you know, well, Betty told me this and she said not to say anything, but I'm telling you anyway. So that would be like, there'd be poor boundaries there. Um, if people were allowed to just weigh in on everything, whatever you did, whatever you had, I don't, know, I don't like that. I don't know about that. That's again, these are more mental boundaries, but they're still boundaries because there's all different kinds, right? There's physical boundaries, how close you like people to be to you. There are you're, you're, the boundaries in your mind, which are more psychological, like, do you know what you think? Do you have the ability to sort of hold on to your opinion of something if you're in the presence of people who disagree? Or are you more of a chameleon? You know? And, and one other thing I want to say about boundaries is that when we say, like, someone has strong boundaries, I don't like to say it in those terms because I'm talking about healthy boundaries as opposed to disordered boundaries. Because disordered boundaries can look many ways. It can look like you meet someone and you tell them your whole life story. That's having a weak boundary. It can, it can look like you having someone who you consider your best friend for 20 years, but you never tell them how you really feel about things. 
that's having disordered boundaries. So it doesn't all look the same, like where we might have the, the image like, oh, if she has strong boundaries, that means she's like, no way, nobody can come in. Not necessarily, because disordered boundaries are the things that get in the way of us creating deeply intimate relationships, having deep self-knowledge, right? So they don't all look the same because we're all so incredibly unique. So boundaries, and I think that sometimes I know somebody that comes to mind when you're asking about, you know, can you kind of think of someone with strong boundaries? And they are really good in a work environment, career environment, a very um, successful woman, but Mm -hmm. in her relationship, completely the opposite. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? How does that, you can switch it on in one area of your life and then the other area of your life, it just doesn't exist. It's actually very common. And it's very common with the women in my tribe because they've figured out they're very smart. They're a lot of them very perfectionistic and they, they'll do more work than anyone else to like understand the game. Like how, how, do, how, what is success? How do I do it? And many of them had these perfectionist traits as children where the repetition in, in, you know, psychotherapy, we talk about repeating things, right? So Freud would call it repetition compulsion within family systems. I've sort of taken that concept, though. I'm sure Freud won't matter because he's dead. But <laughs> um, and basically expanded it because what I've seen over 22 years of having a private practice and being in the trenches with clients is that we especially tend to repeat unsatisfying relationship patterns which include your boundary patterns, what you think it looks like, right? So you have some people who think that boundaries in a relationship shouldn't exist, right? Because their view of healthy love is like people who are touched and and like, like one. No, like in real life, like actual healthiness, we need two people who like are healthy and then we come together and have something awesome. If, you know, people, you complete me and all this other crap. I mean, listen, that's for movies and that's cool. But it's in real life. Yeah, no. In real life, I see you as a beautiful bunt cake, let's say. And you are perfectly awesome with a cup of tea or by yourself. Let's say a great relationship is like icing, maybe, on that bunt cake. That could be sweet and delicious as well. But it's not mandatory. And so I think that there's a whole other, there's so much identification with being married and wanting or or being partnered, but wanting the other person to like, to do everything so that it's like perfect, you know, and, and it just doesn't exist. Just doesn't. (laughs) So the the, the boundaries are from my understanding are not sort of enforced because of the, that perfection uh, to have a perf- perfect relationship is that's the driving force. It's the higher need than than what the boundary size. That correct? Well, it, it's a, it's a lot of things. That's one thing. Part of it is we're super influenced by the families we grew up in. So if there were, let's say, there were violence in the home that you grew up in, that's a physical boundary violation, right? So if that happened in your life, if you had that experience. Um, you would not probably have the red flags. It's common, 
that when somebody gets hostile in a relationship, if you grew up in a situation where that wasn't happening and somebody like raised their voice, yelled, went to like, maybe they were going to throw something at you, you would be like, like, what the hell? No, this is not love. And that kind of violence, if it didn't go like this in your childhood, you would immediately have a red flag. That's like, I'm out. But if you grew up in a home where those things meshed together, where love and pain went like that early on, you would probably not have the red flag because you're like, oh, but in my unconscious experience, this is how love and boundaries are. So the, the work, anyone who's here saying, wow, I don't, I don't think my boundaries are healthy. They're either too much or they're too little or whatever. They're disordered in some way. You really have to go back and go, okay, so what did I see? What, what did I witness with my parents, my caregivers? Maybe they were your grandparents or other people or foster parents, whoever. What did you see? Because that's our first model of understanding what boundaries are and what's appropriate. And if you came from a very disordered system, a chaotic system, drugs, alcohol, neglect, or over-control, right, where, where someone was just hovering every second, all of those scenarios can create disordered boundaries because you have no idea what's healthy and normal because you haven't experienced it. So you can definitely change it, but we need to know what the blueprint is in order to alter it, right? You can't just, like, we, we don't deal with, like, these broad strokes of, like, but I just want to have healthy boundaries. Okay, but I need to know specifically, you need to know specifically, what is unhealthy? How did your parents problem solve? So did they, was there stonewalling, right? Did people, were people just withdrawn in anger? Or was it a fighting family where people were screaming and yelling? Those are all boundary situations that whatever you experienced can impact what happens. Now, it doesn't mean this happens for everyone. So the reason I came up with any kind of blueprint for you to sort of follow the dots is because if you're having trouble understanding your own relationship to boundaries, the answers are within you. They're just in the past. So from my understanding, the blueprint really takes you back in that kind of imprinting phase, the experiences you, you, you experienced, the things that you felt, that you saw, that you heard within your family environment with yes. those parents or grandparents as to get a bit of an understanding how you were showing up today and uh, why your boundaries are uh, distorted or yeah. non-existent. So when they're distorted, is there sometimes with boundaries a secondary gain as to why they have these boundaries? Of course. <laughs> Can you talk us like through anything. that? Yeah. Sure. Well, let's talk about secondary gain, what it is. Mm. Because, you know, therapeutically we call it secondary gain. Um, but I also refer to it as like sort of the, the hidden benefit from staying stuck. Because it's not a primary gain because we wouldn't, we don't want to stay in dysfunctional situations. But the secondary gain, let's just... Let's just, I'll just make up something so that we can actually just have an example of what it is. Um, actually, I could tell a true story from a client who, um, I had a client come to me this years ago and she has, had been um, very obese and very unhealthy in her life and was really, had really tried everything, was, was really distraught because it was really hurting her body. She was now getting on in years and her knees, she had replacements and hips and, you know, I was like, okay, so let's, let's 
figure out what, what is the secondary gain of staying where you are in the beginning. And of course I didn't do this early on because she was like, you know, fuck off, like, hi, there is none. Like I really have tried. What are you saying? But we got to it. And I knew that there was, I, I couldn't put my finger on what there was, but I knew there was something. And I said, well, just tell, tell me the history of your relationship to this additional weight. Like, what is the history? And then she basically said, well, I was perfectly average until I had, she actually was attacked and was um, sexually assaulted when she was 13. And she said, and within two years, I gained a hundred pounds and I've never lost it. And I was like, okay. So if we had to say, and then here are the questions that you can ask yourself. If you want to identify your own secondary gain in any situation where you feel stuck, it's, it's kind of simple. You can say, what do I get to not face, not feel, or not experience by staying stuck here? So with my client, she was like, oh, I get to not feel desirable because that made me then feel threatened. And then that had something terrible happen to me. But she was so far past it because she was married. Like this is unconscious, right? She'd been happily married for a long time. Her biggest pain in life was the physical um, unwellness that she had because of the additional weight. It was high blood pressure, all those things. And when she was able to say, I actually thought the addition, somewhere in my unconscious mind, we got to that the additional weight would protect her from being violated. So we went up and when we, when we did, with, through the next two years of working on this, she actually lost 98 pounds and is super happy in her life and way, way healthier than she was. But it's understanding, not blaming right? We're not blaming ourselves. Like what I find, if you really want to do this work, if you really want to be liberated from something that's not working in your life, you have to become the observer as Deepak Chopra would tell you and told me many years ago, become the observer without judgment. Try to understand, get really curious about like, huh, let me look for the patterns. Why am I doing this? Why do I end up, let's say, with unavailable men? What is the secondary gain, right? What is the unobvious gain of doing, of keeping that pattern going? Oh, I get to not actually be really vulnerable because I'm afraid I'm going to be hurt. So I choose people who will never even get it to that point because they are unavailable, married, however they're unavailable. When I was younger, I was, uh, before I figured out my love thing, which I did, but for a long time, I didn't. And I didn't want someone like my father. He was um, very successful, you know, Brooks brother suit wearing Wall Street Journal reading golfer, you know, very waspy sort of guy who definitely should have had sons and had four daughters. So I was his last daughter and I was all like, he wishes I was a son. It was like all the gender shit. It was like a whole thing. And I thought I'd had a little bit of therapy and I was like, oh, I'm, I've totally figured out how not to end up like my mother. I am attracted to all of these warm and affectionate and verbally affectionate European men. This is so amazing. And I was like, oh, wait, but they all live on another continent. Oh, my God. So I was still repeating the same unavailable man thing, just doing it in a different format. I mean, I eventually stopped that, obviously. But there's something about thinking I had outsmarted it. So sometimes the repetition doesn't have to be like, oh, the person um, is exactly like that person, right? Those, those boyfriends were nothing like my father 
except the end result was I was left alone, lonely, and longing. Oh, just like my relationship with my father. <laughs> Isn't that's it? amazing. So that's, that's when I'm, I'm thinking about that, that's really your unconscious mind keeping you safe, correct? Hence why you're repeating these patterns over and over. Yes. Which brings me to this. I just, uh, I've been doing a little bit of research in regards to psychological safety. And one of the things that uh, insight that I just got a couple of weeks ago was I find myself in these repeating patterns where uh, I have a high need for autonomy. So freedom is really important to me. So in anything that I do, in any relationship, in any kind of work, adventure or project, as long as I'm high in autonomy, that's my highest need. But funnily enough, when I did this uh, assessment, my lowest need was trust to feel mm. safe. So this was like an insight for me because now I'm like, now I know why I'm attracting these untrustworthy people into my life because it's yeah. not a high need. Yeah. So what are your thoughts around that? I'm curious. Well, part of it is you, you, you have to look at for you, right? In general, you look at why, why wouldn't that, why wouldn't trust be a high need. It's almost like the autonomy you've chosen as the thing because it creates distance. So you're like, well, I don't need to worry about trust because I've got a whole friggin' moat between me and that person. They know, don't try to step on me. Don't try to boss me around. I'm doing my own thing. But those things block deep intimacy, right? We need to find autonomy. So independence in relationships plus interdependence which requires trust. You can only have interdependence if the person you're depending on shows up. Mm. If the person you're depending on keeps their word and does the thing they say they're going to do. So again, part of it is, is re-looking at what you need to be happy. Yes, psychological safety, for sure. Like, I get that. But I feel like the bar is higher. That, that's, this is step one, right? And a lot of people, if you have a repetition of abuse in your life, that you don't even grasp that it is possible to be in a relationship where you never fight. Like, I never fight with my husband, right? We disagree. We debate sometimes. We argue. We get snappy, sarcastic once in a while. But I can't that that just is not where I'm from basically and it is so threatening to me if anybody raises their voice I'm like bye I remember having a college boyfriend and I and he was he was per, healthy perfect nothing wrong with him a great guy I went out with him for years and I remember early on in the relationship he like got mad about something and he wasn't even mad at me oh my god I probably would have died but he was like mad about something and I was like hey listen like no with that anger thing he was like uh, wait a minute. So you're telling me I can never get angry? I was like, yeah. He's like, uh, okay, Tara, that's probably not realistic. I was like, listen, buddy, I'm just telling you right now. You you could save that for somewhere else. Like, I was so threatened because of my lack of exposure to healthy anger that I was like, if anyone raises their voice, I mean, my experience was my parents had one conversation I overheard once. The next day, my father moved out. My parents got divorced. Okay. Somebody raises their voice even a little bit, things die, right? That This was the imprint that I had as a child. And so it took years, of course. I mean, my, my poor college boyfriend, I tortured him. But I mean, obviously, I'm fine with normal anger now. But these are all the things 
that you discover when you do these different blueprints from the past. So you have, you'll have a lot of therapists who are like really into like, let's just linger in like when you were eight years old. I'm definitely not one of those people. All I care about from your past is anything that is still charged that is negatively impacting your ability right now to create the life you want. That's it. And there's ways to find out what that is, what those things are. I mean, of course, in the courses I do, there's a process, but just being aware when you become the observer, when you go, oh, um, I really like got mad at that situation, whatever it was, then you have to say, what was that about? If I weren't judging and if I were the other person wrong and like, well, they're just an idiot, what would I be learning about myself? So I give the three questions, right? And I could just tell you, and I feel like we, we might've talked about this last time we were together, that if you want to understand something from the past that might be influencing negatively your behavior in the present in your relationships. This is called having a transference, right? So we're basically transferring this charged material from over here. And then we're like, wow, over here in real life right now. But real life right now might not really, this, this big explosion might not be appropriate for what's happening. The person's like, um, hello, what are you so mad about? I don't even get it. So the way that you can sort of understand is just asking yourself the three cues, which are three questions, which are, who does this person remind me of? Where have I felt like this before? And why is this dynamic, sort of the way we're interacting with each other? Why is that familiar? Is it someone who you're trying to talk and they keep cutting you off? And if you were to ask yourself, why is that dynamic familiar? You could say, oh my gosh, well, my parents fought. My mother would do that to my father. Okay, good. So, so now we're starting to understand why it might be so hot for you. And then when you realize, oh, I get that there's something happening there's something from the past that is still being fueled, that's still fueling my behavior in the present. Then we have the, the um, mindfulness, right? The present moment consciousness to be able to say, oh, but what's weird is that like my coworker is not my dad and I'm not my mom. So there's probably a better way that I can figure this out. You can make a simple request. Oh, hey, Bob, um, do me a favor. I'm not done with what I was saying. So can you please wait? Just resist putting in your two cents until I'm done, I would super appreciate that. Like there are ways to, with kindness, I'd like to make a simple request that you wait to give your input until I'm done. So can Bob, can we agree that you'll wait? Bob will be like, oh, okay. Or maybe not, but it's learning the words instead of exploding or instead of just being like, Bob's an a-hole, like I hate Bob, right? That we could do that too, but there's no progress because the common denominator in your life is you. It's not Bob. It's not the best friend. It's not the bad boyfriend or girlfriend who betrayed you. You are the common denominator. And when you can figure that out and go, oh, this is a repeating pattern. Like I'm seeing a pattern. Instead of going, I have no idea why. Go, oh, how is it familiar? Did I see this somewhere else? And that's the beginning of having conscious choice instead of being in this unsatisfying repetition. 
So that takes a lot of practice. And I'm thinking, uh, how does one do that being everything so fast, everything's fast paced to be mindful, to be present, to be able to do that. What are your tricks? Listen, I've had a crap ton of therapy. So personally, I've had decades, 30 years probably of therapy, maybe more actually. So part of it is looking at your mental health as important as every other part of your health, right? If you knew that committing to becoming like an expert on you through therapy, courses, whatever, that that would lessen the suffering that you experience and like exponentially increase your joy, would you do it? So how do we slow things down? I have a dedicated meditation practice, right? Because this creates about two seconds of response time. So instead of always reacting, for me, and I was such a type A psycho when I started meditating many years ago where I tried for like a decade and failed every single time until I actually met Deepak Chopra, David Simon, David G, all these people from the Chopra Center. And that was the really this massive pivot in my own transformation because it was such a natural shift. Once I practiced daily, right? So it's a daily discipline, you know, where, and it doesn't have to be that long. You can start. In fact, I'm, can I say what I'm giving them? Oh, absolutely you can. It's going to be on your page. Go for it. So I'm giving, because I want all of you who are watching and listening, to have those these two seconds of response time so you can stop apologizing so much. I'm gifting you a very beautiful guided meditation that I created for you that is called the guilt-free guided meditation. So it's a way to um, plant some seeds in your unconscious and your conscious mind about your rights and or your obligation to say no when you feel no to be honest about your limitations to prioritize your preference and let people know what that is so anyway it will be on the page Catherine's nice enough to say I can give you a little gift but I think that you guys um, I hope that you will love it and use it and that can be the beginning if you don't have a practice it's about 10 minutes so all you need to do is have a butt and a pillow and you can be a meditator just hit play <laughs> and let me guide you and see how that feels so so back to the trying to answer the question which is i created internal space by having a dedicated meditation practice mm. within that internal space my teacher david g would tell you that meditation because i remember when i first learned i was like what's supposed to happen teacher when I'm meditating, like, what's supposed to be going on? And he was like, nothing. I was like, perfect, because nothing's happening. <laughs> so maybe I'm doing it right. And he said, Terry, you have to understand that your practice, your meditation is to give you the um, possibility, the opportunity to take a thimble full of that stillness and silence and bring it out into the rest of your day. So everything is like slowed down, breathing giving yourself more time to get places. If you want to be mindful, you need to be committed to not being late. Don't rush everywhere. That's like your built-in default to not be mindful is 
to be someone who's always late because what are you thinking? Crap. Oh shit. Oh no, I don't care. People are stupid. Get out of my way. Running people over on the subway, walking into your meeting, sweating your ass off late, being like, sorry, I'm late. Sorry, I'm late. Like, do you get how that's just a setup to just stay on the hamster wheel of bullshit, which you don't want? But this is people are like, no, I just, I'm just late. I'm like, oh, so much deeper than you just being late. It's such a self-sabotage, you know, but this is what mindfulness will do. And it is a commitment because you know what is so interesting, Catherine, is that we're willing to like, for me, when I was climbing that, you know, Hollywood corporate ladder, like I was willing to work crazy hours, have no friggin' life whatsoever. Like I was willing to do pretty much anything to like get to the top of that heap, you know, and that's not where the good stuff is not at the top of a heap of money. I mean, hey, it doesn't suck having money, but that isn't where the answers are. So part of it is think about that it is an honor and a privilege that you get to evolve in this life if you so choose. And if you don't choose, then no offense, but don't complain because, hey, you have choices and it can't be about everyone else. And I'm not saying there are not people who will do incredibly crappy things in life, of course. And there are many other things that happen that we don't have control over, but you do have control over you, your thoughts, your choices, right? We don't have control over how people interpret what we do, if they misunderstood. I'm like, listen, I know what I meant. So you, you're offended. That was not my intention. I'm sorry you feel that way, but, but I don't take it on like, was I offensive? I was not. I, I know myself. So the more you know yourself, the less you get sucked into those types of things. And imagine that you have the power right now to change what's not working in your life. You know, and it's not like anyone's your guru, not me, not Catherine, nobody else, right? I can just say that I'm a damn good GPS to help you find the information that is already within you that you need to be liberated from unsatisfying repetitions, whether they're in love, whether they're boundaries, whatever. Oh, I love the whole analogy of you being our, our perfect GPS, mm-hmm. gorgeous GPS. So Terry, is there anything that you would like to leave for our viewers, our listeners today before we wrap up? Anything specifically? What I really want to say is that you are so much more powerful than you think. And that whatever it is that you fear you don't deserve, that's just a lie. Because the truth is you deserve your heart's desire. And that requires a willingness for you to do the work, to figure it out. Like no one can do this for you, but you can do it. And so I just want to say, don't give up. It's not too late. Whatever ship you think has sailed, it hasn't. You are the head of that ship. You're the head of your life. So decide that you're right on time. Uh, Marianne Williamson has this beautiful quote in one of her books about everything that's happened, this paraphrase, but everything that's happened in your life to this point has all been grist for the mill, right? It's, It's what's gotten you where you are. So no matter what it is and no matter how far down you've gone, it's never too late to, to bring yourself back up. So basically, you're not too old. It's not too late. You're right on time. 
and you're better than you know. Oh, I love that. I just got goosebumps. Thank you for that. So as we wrap up, Terry, we love to ask three rapid, fun questions. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. What's the first thing you notice when you meet someone? Uh, Their eyes. Mm. If you were a superhero, what would be your powers? I kind of am a superhero. <laughs> you are. <laughs> well, my power is just knowing things that I don't even want to know about people. But oh, my superpower, gosh. I mean, if I were being like superficial, I'd be like flying because yeah. that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, maybe if I was being deeper. No, I think I have to just pick flying because that would really be what I would want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And the last one, what is one item you can never live without? Um, lip moisturizer. So like lip stuff. Yeah. Just Burt's Bees, the pomegranate one for extra moisture. Couldn't live. If I was on a desert island, I would have a case of those and probably no water. But <laughs> oh, I hear you loud and clear. Terry, I can't thank you enough for coming on the Radical Shift Summit. You're an absolute amazing, wonderful woman. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. And uh, you've got this real hypnotic voice. I feel so at bliss right now. So thank you so much. And I'm sure our viewers and listeners are going to reach out and feel exactly the same way. Well, I'm so grateful that you're doing this. I can't wait to watch and listen to all of it. And really an honor and a privilege. I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world, Kat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please click on share show with your friends to help make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to get involved is to click on follow show or leave a review on iTunes so that we can give you a shout out on the show. If you have been a long time listener of the show, you know we are big on delivering content that is valuable for you content that will address your pain points so if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast show please reach out and we will create the content to meet your needs yes you heard right if you have topics themes or special guests that you want to hear from please send us a note to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will create a show especially for you wherever you are in the world Sending you love, blessings and peace. Namaste.